Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Many people have followed the terrible story of the Syrian civil war over the past 10 years. And a lot of you as listeners probably think that that war has ended, sadly with the defeat of the rebels and the victory of Bashar al-Assad. But this is not the case. There is still a part of northwest Syria that is controlled by rebels and is still holding out against Assad's forces. And a key element of this story is the work of the civil defence unit, the White Helmets. The White Helmets have been rescuing civilians in Syria right from the early days of the civil war, in spite of the pressure they've received from both the Syrian regime and others around the world who've chosen to attack them. I'm honoured and delighted to have with me today Ammar al-Selmo, who's joining us from northwest Syria and who is a White Helmets volunteer to tell us about his work and the situation in Syria at the moment. Ammar, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so honoured to uh, join this uh, podcast. Well, it, it's, a, it's an honour to have you because uh, you and your colleagues in the White Helmets are really heroes of this story. So perhaps we could start, just explain to the listener, what is the White Helmets? What's the background? What's the story of this group? And how did you mm-hmm. become involved? Thank you. Uh, the Wild Helmets is a, a humanitarian organization. There is a saying, neighbors help first. We were the neighbor. Yeah. In 2013, hundreds of volunteers from all walks of life came together within the aim of helping their community respond to shelling and air raids. And to fill the gaps, the gaps caused by the Syrian regime after the withdrawal of government services such as healthcare, firefighting, and first responder. In yeah. 2014, we began to discuss how we would uh, unite these efforts in more formal way to become to, be, to become one organization. In 2021, the uh, number of volunteers has grown to more than 3,000 male and female volunteers who work in Northwest Syria only right now providing services to approximately 5 million in this area. We have been able to save 125,000 from under the rubble so far, while we lost about 300 volunteers, most of whom were killed by the double-tap bombing that targeted them while rescuing civilians from under the rubble. So this is the most challenge, and I think this is unique and become a trend to attack a humanitarian worker in Syria. So, uh, Amar, thank you for that introduction. How did you become involved with the White Helmets? Because as you say, it began as volunteers, as normal citizens. What, what's your story here? Actually, it's a, uh, it's a long story because I was a teacher before the war. First of all, to give the reality of the situation, it was a chaos. It's, life stopped completely. So yeah. I started to search for myself at that time, to search for the future. First of all, I, I decided with a, I wanted with a colleagues to stay at our country because we love the country, we love the people. Uh, but after that, I started to, to think of two options. First of all, education. But I started to like, consider uh, collecting 20 to 30 students. And this is dangerous because at that time, schools, hospitals, infrastructure was attacked heavily by the aircraft under artillery shelling. Yeah. So I started uh, searching for another thing to be helpful. So I started to uh, to think of, of something like responding, first responder. So this is 
uh, a good thing for us because we feel that we, we are useful, but it is also a, a heavy burden on us because people depend on you to do something useful, not just arriving and collecting the dead body. But the increase of, of bombing and development of new weapons, like uh, using barrel bomb, using a new weapon, yeah. uh, our mission became more difficult. I remember with the fall of uh, barrel bombs, I felt frustrated because the barrel bombs destroyed an entire building. And yeah. the simple equipment that we have stand helpless in the, in the face of the huge uh, uh, rubble. I will uh, tell a story that happened with me in 2013. One of the barrel bombs fell on one of the neighborhood of Aleppo. It was complete destruction. It's a building of five floor collapsed. Yeah. And at that time, we spent all the night talking. It is impossible mission. We should leave this mission because we, can, we don't have any equipment. People look at our eyes. What we would say to them if we wouldn't have uh, equipment? We was in discussion. So at the morning... Uh, civilians started to calling for uh, a response. So my colleagues were braver than me. And when they started searching with their hands and their simple equipment, yeah. we pulled out a girl. We pulled out a girl alive. How old was the girl? She, she was six years old. Wow. We, we did it. We all cried at that time. Because this is the first time for us to get out a girl from under the rubble. It is not collecting just dead bodies anymore. It was about saving lives and providing people with a second chance in life. So yeah. this is, was a turning point for, for my team to continue and search for equipment, for training. And after that, we are able to, to have equipment and, and, and training from the British organization in Turkey. And that's helped us a lot. I remember the first vehicle we, arrived, uh, we, we, we received from that organization it wasn't like a game change in, in, in the city. Well, thank, thank you. And if, if I understand correctly, at this time you were working in Aleppo, in Halab, and yeah. then uh, because of the situation, uh, you then had to move to northwest Syria to Idlib. So can you, uh, many people in the West, they think the war is over in Syria. So can you tell us what is the story in Idlib? In Idlib right now, there are about 5 million living here from all around Syria. Half of these uh, people are uh, displaced from other parts of Syria. So you can say the most vulnerable people live here in, in the northwest of Syria. Yeah. The world, as you said, the world is saying there is no war in Syria because of the ceasefire. Mm, yet in 2020, 2021, 5,000, we responded to 5,000 direct attacks were documented by the wild helmets. Wow. 1,000 people were killed, most of them children and women. Uh, airstrikes and shelling remained a daily re reality, a daily routine for civilians in North Syria. So every day is a survival day for, for the people here. We don't know where, where the attacks will happen because there is no front line. Just a couple of months ago, the uh, Russian aircraft attacked a uh, humanitarian air, uh, warehouse in, in point zero. It's near the border, exactly the border, Turkey border. So uh, I know that in every war, in every conflict, it's a typical, it's a typical thing for a humanitarian worker or first responder to stack between line of fires. But here, in these cases, you are the target. You are always yeah. the target. 
And people right now talking about aid. You 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 are following the news, thinking about how they will renew the uh, aid cross border resolution. It's not aid because aid cannot uh, end the attacks or 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 solve the situation here. People are waiting for for a solution. Five million. They did not want to leave to completely their life in camps. I'm talking about generation new newborn babies every day. Those without education, um, the the aid is not enough. The livelihood condition is not good, and the infrastructure is so so weak. So this is not a solution for for the five million people. Tell me about you uh, personally, Amar, because as you said. Uh... Very sadly, many of your uh, colleagues in the White Helmets have themselves been killed uh, in this work. How do you keep yourselves and your team motivated? And how do you carry on this work when you're facing such a difficult uh, situation? Yes, true. This is a good question because uh, those who survive uh, the war in Syria embody um, they they have problem in, in psychology. They have problem in, in something else. Yes. Uh, since the beginning of, of my work, I have witnessed hundreds of massacres and tragedies. Yeah. Um, because of uh, they are documented, and uh, the perpetrators have not been held accountable. We sometimes feel helpless. But uh, you can say working in humanitarian uh, humanitarian uh, sector, working in, as a, as a first responders. Is also like a drug. You are addicted to help civilians. You are addicted to give a hand. Without doing thing, uh, good thing on every day, you feel that you are uh, useless. You are not alive. We every day face uh, unidentified uh, persons in the, in the big massacres. Unidentified person, we we bury them alone without a final farewell to to their loved ones. Yes. Uh, they all uh, call us to protect their rights and. Uh, to, to keep the rights alive and to hold uh, criminal ac- accountable and expose them. I will talk about also as, uh, an incident, our response yes. that happened to me in 2014. It's a promise from me to the victims to tell their story because a lot of, of tragedies happen without a camera, without uh, conveyed to the world because they have right on us to, to tell their story. Um, in 2014, uh, at that time, we began the tactics of scout team or divide team to small group because just days ago, we lost two of our volunteers in double tap bombing. So uh, I, I discussed that with my team and we reached that I should go before them to assess the place of attack. When I arrived, I uh, was it was still dust, completely yeah. dust. Uh, I, I just recognized that it's a big massacre. So I started to call the team, all the team to come. Yes. Uh, I tried to search the place to inspect the, the whole place until I reached the woman. She was leaning on a wall and she was covered in her blood. She asked me when she saw me to give her her son because her son was near her, but, but she was moveless. She cannot move to 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 bring her son to yes. to catch her son. Her son was around forty years old. And yeah. they had some bruises, and he did not show any serious injuries. He was so calm, quite calm. Without hesitation, I gave her her son, and she hugged him to her chest. Then yeah. after that, he started crying, screaming, as if he, if he knew that it was uh, his last hug from his uh, dying mother. Then we carried the, her 
with him to the hospital on a blanket because that time we don't have a lot of equipment. So on a blanket, we, and she passed away. Wow. Those stories, always, always, uh, we, we remember these stories to keep the, the truth alive, to, to yes. hold those perpetrators accountable. Because in all history, in all, in all history books, even in Syria, when I was a teacher, we were teaching children how uh, glorifying the war, you know, glorifying the war and talking about the history as glory. But yeah. war is so uh, atrocious thing. Yes. And atrocity happened in war. And those who did not uh, witness the war did not know the real uh, on the ground. So among the stories that we used to see on daily basis is what was the seeing a mother holding her child uh, under the rubble. She, uh, it seems that she's trying to, to protect him when, when she heard the barrel bomb drop. So, yeah. so this is seen always hunting us to, to remind us of, of their rights. So, uh, Amar, you've talked a lot about the way in which uh, war crimes are being carried out against the civilians in your area. You talked about the the double tap where the the first bombing attracts the rescuers and then the second bombing hits those rescuers. You talked about a bombing of a humanitarian warehouse. Um, what is your uh, feeling about uh the the perpetrators so we know that the syrian regime bashar al-assad's people are doing this but of course they have a lot of support from from russia and possibly from iran and other countries so what what is your understanding of of these these groups and why they are doing this uh, russian right now turned syria to be a training uh, land a training field at the at the last couple of months uh, they used the new weapons like um, uh, laser-guided weapons. So the target is precise in this weapon. No chance for accidental attacks. When a school yeah. is attacked, it is because it was attacked on purpose. 50 schools and 20 hospitals in the last two years were attacked. For Iran, they they trying hard to change the fabric, Syrian fabric. So they yeah. are more involved in in uh, in the community. And uh, at the same time, corruption... Um, drugs, blah blah blah. You can say this is the land that they can they can flourish in it. Iran always wants poor people to because poor people are are easily controlled. So this yes. is a threat to the not to only to Syria, also to the region. Yes. Now you talked about how Russia is using Syria like a kind of training ground. Of course, here in Europe, uh, a lot of people are now talking about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, and the possibility of a of a Russian attack on Ukraine. Um, do you feel that people are forgetting about Syria because they're more focused on the situation in Europe? Talking about this, there are right now five to six hotspots around the world. So yes. we know that um, people of the UK, people of the world, have their problem, have more problem to focus on. So people uh, around the world right now are Forget, forget about Syria because even Syria not on the news. But we are living in one world. What happened in Syria affected other way. What happened in Ukraine? Because Putin will not dare to to invade to to make this to Ukraine without uh, uh, 
committing everything in Syria without accountability. He killed thousands of thousands of Syria without accountability, without justice. So he's getting away with that. Yeah. Uh, like like I, I said before, uh, attacking humanitarian worker become a trend, become a new normal in the life. So when we heard that there's two humanitarian workers were killed in Myanmar uh, from the Save the Children, it's, a, it's, a, it's nothing happened because it's it's a norm, like targeting yeah. humanitarian worker, demonizing humanitarian worker is a norm. So what happened in Syria affect in in, in way or another what happened in Ukraine. Yeah. We are connected. Yeah. Yeah. So northwest Syria has continued to be held by the rebels from the beginning. Uh, what's your perspective? Do you expect, because you know, you're facing more attacks from Russia, from Iran, and of course the Syrian regime itself, uh, what is your expectation about what will happen to the area where you are now based? Actually, we cannot be sure about the future of Syria and the future of Idlib, because it is largely up to the international community. In 2011, we witnessed a mass uprising, people going out in the, into the street by thousands demanding change, freedom, human rights. We as Syrian people don't have the power to face the Assad regime. We uh, are civilians going against an army at that time. I believe that if the international community seriously believe in, in the same values, that the Syrian people called for, then real change can be made. Yeah. Uh, it is difficult to speak about on, on behalf of all the Syrian and on behalf of all the residents of Idlib. But it is not a matter for your question, regarding your question, it's not a matter of Idlib, of a region. It's a matter of 5 million uh, people who live here in the Northwest, their life in danger of, of the Assad regime advancing this area. Uh, we see uh, a huge wave of, of uh, immigrants leaving to Turkey. And this yeah. is, will be the case. So people will not uh, stay here. They will, they will try to escape the Syria to, 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 to Turkey, break the, the, the wall, break the, the, the line or the border, trying to reach Turkey because uh, their life are unsafe under the regime. Now, one thing that has happened is that the White Helmets, which, as you've explained, is a voluntary organization and you, you exist purely to uh, support and protect your neighbors, other civilians. But there has been a lot of propaganda and allegations about the White Helmets to say that it's like a front for the CIA or for other Western interests. And of course, the White Helmets has received support from uh, some Western uh, governments and Western donations. So uh, how do you respond to this allegation? And uh, what would you want to say to somebody here in England who maybe has read stories that says the White Helmet is involved in, um, you know, activities which are inappropriate for a, for a civilian organization? Yes, uh, we were taking aid from UK, from US, from many countries from the very beginning. Yes. First of all, I just want to assure that there is no contradicting in the meeting of the political goal, that's in my opinion, and the humanitarian motives. Yes. As the relief and the aid and the, is, is a complex process in which political uh, consideration and the humanitarian values sometimes overlap. So... Sometimes when I hear this, I uh, it is to me as a bad joke. We are uh, a military responder. This is uh, like asking a doctor 
or unbalanced worker if they are front uh, for Western power or not. Because yes. it is nothing. It is a normal thing. It's a human rights thing to to give aid to the people, to to, yes. to respond to the people. So white helmets began as a reaction to the lack of action towards the, the those who uh, who hurt and uh, affected by the war. If the if the government if government institution did or carry, carried out their their mission or their their duties, we will not be existed, will not be created. Second thing, I I know uh, as a, a consequence of uh, of our work, we became a, a witness to the uh, aftermath of the horror of that which was uh, occurring in Syria. Witnesses to a number of war crimes and the crime against humanity perpetrated by the regime and its allies. Yes. And because of, of this documentation, because what we are witnessing, because we our collaboration with the United Nations organization, uh, investigation, they trying to demonize our work. They're trying to defame us. They're targeting us on, on the ground and demonizing us on the media. If they cannot kill the witnesses, they're trying to, to defaming uh, the, the, the witnesses. So it's because you have witnessed these war crimes that you are seen as a danger by the uh, Syrian regime. Yes, we don't ignore that. Our work has has had a, a meaningful uh, political consequences because these crimes, these war crimes, this documentation will be at the end to be to, to be in the in the in the court for justice and accountability in the future. We cannot yeah, ignore that. Absolutely. And I, I wanted to ask you about. You personally, do you feel at risk? Because, as you said, the, the White Helmets has become uh, associated by the Syrian regime as a kind of enemy organization, although it is a civilian uh, defense organization. Uh, is there a risk and a threat to members of your family, to you? Uh, maybe you have relatives in regime areas of Syria. How do you manage that? Yes, every every white helmet volunteers uh, uh, in, in this danger because we are um, part of the great battle of uh, narrative in Syria, and they can reach anyone in in any any country because they are criminal. But from the very beginning, we uh, choose this road, this path to complete, and uh, we don't we don't fear of, of anything because. Uh, we were exposed to many attacks, uh, especially double tab uh, bombing. Maybe you, my family always talk about this, but this is not a, a threat for us uh, because we we chose this path. My last question about the situation in in Syria is really: uh, What's your feeling about the regional countries? Because at the beginning, there was some support. Uh, some of the Gulf countries, they said they wanted to get rid of Bashar Assad. What's your per- perception of those Arab countries that have turned away from Syria? I think that Bashar Assad cannot be rehabilitated, cannot be um, present again in, in Syria yes. because uh, he, he killed a million, he displaced 13 million. He cannot bring stability to the region. So all that efforts to rehabilitate Assad will be in vain because right now Syria under the Assad regime become, become the producer of drugs and uh, corruption um, in the country. So this regime cannot be rehabilitated. I, I know that. 
And for the interest of the rebel, here we just need the, the, the international community, the people, the country and the region to look at the people, not at the rebel. Because yes. at the last, we have 5 million uh, living here in the northwest of Syria. We have all, even the, those who live under the regime control, 8 million. Not all of them uh, supporting the regime. They, they, uh, the regime for them is like the de facto authority. So we we are hoping that someday they will be uh, uh, a political transition, just justice, accountability. We're waiting for that, and we are sure that will happen in the future. Good. So my final question, Amar, is to ask you uh, what you would like the people in Western countries to do, because as I mentioned at the beginning, unfortunately, a lot of people have kind of forgotten about Syria. They've forgotten about the white helmets. Um, how can we, as ordinary people in the West, help you make a difference? First of all, I would like to thank the uh, UK uh, people and government for supporting the white helmets because white helmets and, and, and Syrian in general most important strength is friends around the world. We have a lot of friends around the world. We have already friends in UK who support yes. us. Uh, first of all, we need them to keep Syrian cause in their mind. We know that they have a lot of problem, uh, and the world has also a lot of problem. But it's a humanity issue. Uh, we we need them to to keep the the life uh, the the truth alive because we are delivering the truth. We we just we need uh, solidarity from them uh, to 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 keep the Syrian cause in their mind. Well, one small way we can do that is by uh, allowing someone such as yourself talk to our podcast. So, Amar, I want to thank you. The work you're doing is incredibly important, and it's it must be the hardest job in the world. So, I'm I'm very honoured to have had the chance to talk to you, and thank you very much for uh, giving us your time today. Thank you. I am, I am so thankful for having me in this opportunity. Great. If anybody's heard this and would like to know more, check our show notes for a link to the White Helmet and their website. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. The Bunker was presented by Artist Snell, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovic and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And lead producer is Jacob Jarrett. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.